Welcome to Cathedral Talk, a podcast about architecture and Minecraft, where we converse to save Notre Dame. So David, I heard you have an intro for this episode. <laughs> well, as we said on the last time, uh, these are being recorded well in advance. Um, so despite you listening to this, at, I don't know, in August or something, I don't know. Uh, hey, Zach, do you want to see your Christmas present from last year, not this upcoming year? Uh, I have your video turned off. Oh, this is going to be silly. So, <laughs> yes, I do want to see your present. Well, let me turn your video back on. All right. I can I can now see you. Wait, wait, I have to ask, do you normally turn our faces off? Like, is that just something that you normally do? No, it was just for this one because uh, the internet issues, I was trying to isolate it away from issues with me. And so I just did it then. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Alrighty, here we go. Yes, David, I would love to see this uh, Christmas present in August. Christmas present. Oh, sure. It's oh, beautiful. <laughs> Of course, as soon as David reveals the t-shirt, we probably have to mention that we're not quite ready to launch our merch on our own shop yet. Wait, we're, we're doing merch? These things were expensive. <laughs> we can't sell these. <laughs> I was, I Your was... image. So someone describe what this is. Uh, Tom, you do it. I need to go get something that are, is Christmas presents to me, not for you guys. But it's related. Okay. All right. Zach, Zach's off. Zach is leaving the podcast. Zach's leaving the podcast. Um... So David is holding up a t-shirt that he gave me for Christmas, and now he is also offering to Zach virtually. I guess he's going to ship it or something. Uh, Or maybe he'll use like a Star Trek replicator to send the data. But uh, it is a blue t-shirt with our podcast logo. It was a pretty uh, coy uh, over the holidays about how he obtained the high resolution version of the logo from me because he didn't have access to any of my files. So over the holidays, he was just like, hey, um, my sister-in-law really likes the podcast logo. Do you mind sending me a high resolution image of it? And I was like, sure, that's interesting. I think that's more duplicitous than I actually was. I think I just straight up asked you for the image and you're like, okay, why? And I didn't answer, but you still sent it to me. (laughs) Returning back to these things are expensive. Your image is way too complicated to print on a t-shirt for cheap. (laughs) Uh, The the website that I went to, uh, their options were, do you want to do a t-shirt with one color, with two colors, with three colors, with four, with five, with six, or with Whatever the hell this thing is, which is probably like fourteen hundred colors. Um, it's it's more. Yeah, it's it's quite a bit. Um, I mean, your issue there is, I first of all, if you had actually told me that you were doing this, I would probably have eliminated the gradients. Uh, gradients look great on computer screens, and they look terrible when they're printed in real life. Yeah, I don't know. It looks nice on the. Uh the statues? Yeah, no, it does. I mean, it actually turned out way better than I would have expected it to on fabric. Yeah, I was pretty impressed. We'll see how much, how, how much it uh, stands up to multiple washings. Yeah, right. It's definitely the kind of t-shirt I wouldn't expect to last forever, but... Um, I actually keep forgetting to wear mine because I had it hidden in a drawer because I hadn't given Zach his yet, so I haven't actually worn mine yet. They're comfy. They got a nice fabric there. Good. They weren't cheap. <laughs> 
Um, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll keep playing around with maybe variations that, you know, one day could be turned into a mass producible t-shirt that is cheap to produce, but expensive to purchase. So this podcast could actually <laughs> make a look. <laughs> That's how you want to sell it. Yeah. 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 Hey Zach, where do you live? Do you want to share your address with everyone? I live at beep, beep. <laughs> I, I'm not beeping this out. So speaking of Christmas presents, I don't think my father-in-law listens to the podcast, but he has, on more than one occasion, talked to me about it in person. Mm. Wait, that's confusing. Because he also enjoys cathedrals. Really? In part for religious reasons. Oh, good. And he knew that I was doing a podcast on this. Um, book one. Ooh. Book one. Awesome. 100 Most Beautiful Cathedrals of the World. Ooh. I don't have this one. I need to get this one. I hope those are in ranked order because Tom loves things in ranked order. Yes, please. Please tell me they're in ranked order. Uh, I totally have inspected this book. And I have <laughs> opened it up. Um, I'm going to guess it's alphabetical. That's how most cathedral books tend to be. It starts... With Milan's mighty cathedral. That's not alphabetical. The Santa Maria Nascente. That's uh, that's one that gets a lot of love. Maybe one day we'll get to Milan. Yep. And then the Cathedral of Dogs. <laughs> <laughs> is this Venice? Or Doges. Uh, that is in Venice. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's the it's the Doges. The Doges. That's what I said in the second time I said it. Yeah. Dogecoin. Imagine which one I'm going to edit in. The Byzantine <laughs> spirit, the golden mosaics in the church of San Vitale in Ravenna. Ravenna. All right, so how, how many pages is this book? Oh, my goodness. This book is... You can turn to the end. You don't need to count them. I know. That's what I'm doing. You're podcasting with a smart person. It's 207 pages. Okay, and what page is Notre Dame on? <sighs> making me look at things. I mean, that's like that's just like bare bones. You should know that. It doesn't have... Uh, a table of contents. Doesn't have Notre Dame on. That'd be fun. <laughs> I, I call hacks. Oh, it does. It does. Okay, Europe. Okay, so this is broken down by region. Well, I'm looking at the table of contents. France. Uh, since a lot of them are Notre Dame. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Paris is on page 46. 46. How many, how many volumes of this are there? Um, just the one. Oh, I thought he said, I thought. Book one. I thought it said that was book one of several. Of several that he received. Yeah, book two. Ooh, there we go. Cathedrals of the world. Cathedrals of the world. That's book two there? That's book two. Hmm, interesting. I wonder why they put it on book two and not book one. They're not hmm. part of the same series. Tom is very confused by this. Tom, he got two books and he's I showing you. I didn't get you. two books. Oh, I did get two books, but I didn't just oh, get two books. Oh, okay, I see. They're not related. They're just two different books on cathedrals. One has Notre Dame and one doesn't. No, no, we, uh, we didn't well, say the other one doesn't. Yeah, well. It's what? not on the cover. It's not on the. Why would you have a cathedral book that doesn't have Notre Dame on the cover? So Notre Dame of de Paris is page 68 of this book. Slipping, slipping in the ranks. Slipping. And then Cathedrals of the World. I feel like that title was taken. Book three. Book three. And then France. Notre Dame de Paris is in page 24 of this one. So even higher. Ooh, moving there we up. Go. So I, I, I think that means that it got a, a gold, a silver, and a bronze. And then absolutely nothing to do with actual cathedrals. Uh, is that a novel? Nope. The Cathedral and the Bazaar. I couldn't quite read the subheading. 
musings on Linux and open source by an accidental revolutionary. <laughs> what am I reading, Zach? What is the cathedral? Uh, it's it's whether or not you want to make a whole big edifice when you program something or if you want to make a whole bunch of small things that work together in a unintentionally organized or disorganized manner. So it's it's a essays on programming. Does it have a does it come down to a conclusion or is it make the best case for both? Well, I he is reading the book that I got him for Christmas. I have not yet read this book. Um, <laughs> so I'm hoping he does not listen to this podcast where I admit that I have not yet read his book. Well, see, the thing is, by the time he listens to this again in I don't know, August, when he was like, Zach. How could you have not read my Christmas gift? I'm like, oh, no, no, I did. That was just so long ago. I've, I've, I've read it since. Let's hope that's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this is great because, like, every time I, like, mention a cathedral, we can make Zach the looker-upper person. Yeah. We don't have to just rely on Wikipedia anymore. We can rely on the editor of those books. This became mom's favorite episode. Christmas! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Yay! So, yeah. Tell me where you live. Okay, I will tell you off stream. Okay. So, uh, we gave you both a little homework, and uh, we had an article that we um, read about. And this is going to be another one of those times where we have an article. It's related to Notre Dame, but I think this topic will extend beyond Notre Dame into some more questions that I've been meaning to ask you guys about music and acoustical experiences. Uh, the article that I am referring to in particular is online. It's, um, I think it's on a BBC travel article. And uh, in particular, it's about sound rebuilding within Notre Dame's vaulted structure. It talks a little bit about how they've hired specialists, basically, to uh, sort of um, investigate what different soundscapes you'd find inside Notre Dame in past centuries and... I think they're probably going to use that to sort of guide the reconstruction and, you know, sort of the way they utilize materials kind of with the vaulting and so forth. Uh, what did you guys think of the article? Do you want to start, David? No, I usually do. <laughs> uh, who, who read the article? I read the article. I just finished it. <laughs> and I've read the article, but I admit, I actually, it's been a while since I read it. So I'm like, suddenly my brain's like, okay, crap. I should have taken better notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, this isn't stuff that we haven't uh, talked about in the past. It's not, like... Not entirely, um, no. Yeah. Yeah. So this is... I, 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 I don't want to get just too into this is an article and this is what it was about. But I'll just sort of say... I, actually, I think I'll re sort of refer to the, the, the quote at the end of the article, which I think summarizes nicely what really the, the idea behind it is. Uh, it's about a soundscape archaeologist who is trying to differentiate that they are not simply a sound designer. They're somebody who is trying to recover and rediscover sounds of the past. And so this involves going into older structures like Notre Dame and uh, this person's name, I think it's Mylene Pardon. We'll go with that. Yeah. And her exact quote is, a lot of people think I invent sounds. That is not the case. I recover sounds of the past that can be found in the present. The, the thing that popped into my mind, I think better is articulated by something that's in a discord that we're in, is um, someone was talking about a reconstruction of the Atari console 
and it was make it uh, feel how it felt, not look how it looked. Hmm. Um, a lot of this is spending a lot of time trying to reconstruct how it would have sounded, spending a lot of time and energy in scholarly research in trying to get a good understanding about how things would have sounded. But I think a lot of the the conversations that we have had on other topics is that I don't really care about that so much. I care more about alive people and how they experience the space that they're in. And if you construct it in a way that's authentic to the people who are experiencing it now, even if it's not authentic to how people have experienced it in the past, then you're doing a good job. And if your research into the past helps you make a better experience for the people in the present, then that's good. If the your research and your activities related to how things were done in the past is deleterious to how people are experiencing it in the present, then you are doing something counterproductive. Yeah, I mean, this article does kind of hit on a lot of the things that we've, we've talked on previously too, in terms of your desire to hold on to the present and, and not hold on to things unnecessarily from the past. It also fits with what I said previously in that I find acoustics to be pretty much magic. Like, I, it feels so hard to actually come up with a science of that that I, I it's I find it incredibly hard to get my head around the fact that that can be knowable uh, that it, it feels like it, it would be beyond human intelligence computers obviously help with that but acousticians existed before computers too which leads me to say to Tom's description of the article as well that she straight up says that she made up this title for herself this job title of soundscape archaeologist mm like this this job doesn't exist but she's making it exist <laughs> i think it's cool i also think it's kind of a load of hooey <laughs> um where the thing about sound is until we had recording devices like the ones we're recording this podcast on there could be no records of them it's not something visual where a painting we can that can give us a sense of how things were in the past you can't do that with sound you can't trap a sound up until we figured out recording instruments in the 1800s so it's i think it's neat and i'm sure you can be better at it than someone else but it is fundamentally guesswork uh it can be educated guesswork but it is guesswork well i mean so i you make a great point and i'm not necessarily saying i disagree with you but to push back a little bit um you know, there's tons of guesswork in archaeology. Sure. Uh, I mean, if you just think about dinosaurs, right? Um, in an episode that has yet to be released, uh, and maybe one day will be, and then again, maybe not, we did actually record a little excerpt on dinosaurs, believe it or not. And we, we did. Uh, we, did. Okay. <laughs> we were talking about whether or not dinosaurs had feathers. Oh, yeah. Dinosaurs are birds. Right. Are dinosaurs birds and did t-rex look like a big chicken zach zach loved that conversation for the record i love all of our conversations they're all my children <laughs> oh <laughs> even the ones that we shoved in a closet and didn't let them see the light of day i love those too <laughs> I, I mean every time you see like all these picture books of you know dinosaurs and you know whether or not they have feathers or scales what color they are um and you know all these theories about what the dinosaurs did what they ate 
you know, so much of it is entirely theory and conjecture. That's a good point. They're taking a very limited amount of stuff that still exists and fabricating all sorts of stuff from it. And I, I agree with you, sound is probably one of the things that would be most difficult to capture and preserve. But I think you could still argue that we're aware of how certain things were built and, you know, the configurations of different materials. So if we can use those to replicate in these locations, then what would that sound like? I, I could see there still be an argument that is still considered archaeology. Yeah, sheep are not fundamentally different than they were back in the 13th century. Limestone is not fundamentally different from how it was back in the 13th century. Watermelons are. Watermelons are fundamentally different. Have you seen a, a painting of a watermelon from the 1300s? It's crazy. No. It's what, not, what? it's not, it's, it's like, it's got like spiral shapes in, inside and then we bred them over time to, uh, to be fuller. And this is very relevant to Zach's point. Go on. Yeah. I was going to say, I, there are a lot of things that are different, <laughs> you know, bananas. <laughs> bananas are very different. I'm aware of the bananas. Corn, right? I think anything that you can breed is, is what we're coming down to here. Well, well sheep, sheep you can breed. You, you can breed sheep. Yeah. Maybe sheep are very, maybe sheep are quite different. I, maybe. Maybe. Sorry, where were you going with this? <laughs> um, watermelons don't make noises, last I checked. I can make a watermelon make noise. Yeah, they, they make interesting noises. I, I, I bet you in the 850 years of Notre Dame's life, some poor bastard threw a watermelon on the ground in Notre Dame and made a big splat. It had to have happened at some point. That's just a thing. 850 years, somebody did that. I feel like we're starting to get into the realm of quantum mechanics. Eventually all things happen. Anyways, you, you had a point about sheep being the same. No, I was saying that you can do archaeology with sound if you make some assumptions, which is what Tom was saying, that you can make some assumptions, right? So if you make some assumptions that, you know, the, the hooves of sheep on limestone make a certain amount of noise, what would the soundscape around Notre Dame in the 13th century would have sounded like? You have some constituent elements based off of the literary record about what was happening at that time, what kind of masonry was going on, what kind of blacksmithing was going on, what kind of trade was in, in the area, what kind of buildings were made, and how those things interact with one another. This is on the heels of me saying that as long as it's done to enhance the experience of the people in the present, then that's fine. If it's done purely for the pursuit of knowledge for its own sake then i think i'm more in the the hooey camp that's certainly something that can be your hobby you can certainly do it scientifically um there's there's no gatekeeping going on uh you can be a scientist and you can do this sort of archaeology if you want to but that doesn't mean that i have to care about it i think the 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 most interesting use case that was alluded to in the article is like in a museum setting giving you a experience that's not just visual of like, oh, this is what it would be like to be there and hear the sounds that are around you. Like you think of Notre Dame as like organ music and Gregorian chant, but like actually in the time we have records that you'd be hearing cows in the background, you know, something like that. I don't know if that's actually true, but that was kind of like what was alluded to and like looking at the old records. And so like if you're in a museum about it and walking through, reading the things, but also get this this audio experience uh, too. Eh, that can heighten the experience. So I, I see the value in that, but I agree with you. Although, like doing th That to my point is enhancing the experience of living people 
right now. Right, right, right. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so it's like doing the work that she's doing for the purposes of like making sure that Notre Dame sounds the way that it did 300 years ago. Like, uh, that doesn't really matter to me. I mean, I didn't necessarily think that that was exactly what her goal was, but it sounded more like she was trying to archive like sort of a history of these acoustical uh, things that once did exist in the cathedral for posterity, um, as particularly with all the technology that probably makes this possible. Like you said, like I, I doubt that this acoustical archaeologist could have been really at all possible, you know, 30 years ago. Well, maybe this gets to Zach's feeling on archives. I don't know if we want to go there. I don't know. Maybe you have scary, scary thoughts. We we have a good friend who does archiving work, and this friend is very dear to me, and I won't uh, impugn archiving. Probably should just cut this whole little bit out. Uh, I, I actually I forgot that Zach was anti-archiving. I'm I, not anti-archiving. Who who said I was anti-archiving? No one said. I said maybe this would lead to asking you about it, and I was nervous what the response would be. Ah, uh, okay. I just said I wouldn't impugn it. Okay. I think archiving is very valuable. Um, but again, in the context of the people, the living people reading the archived information. Sure. Not for some abstract ideal of having this information be kept. It is purely for the benefit of the future people reading it. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. The one other thing about the article um, that completely off topic, but it is in there for a sizable portion of, uh, of the article. Please. There are people in Europe currently today building a medieval castle using the tools that would have been used to make a medieval castle hundreds of years ago. Oh, yes. That's cool. That's awesome. Yes. That's a get along. So they're only, they're like been doing it for 25 years and they're not done. So... This, this is beautiful. Yeah, no, in the near future, you know, we're going to have another homework assignment where you guys build our own castles, <laughs> watch some more documentaries on cathedrals. The next one that's on the docket is the classic, uh, at least, I mean, the Nova special building the great cathedrals, which is probably at this point the most well-known one. Uh, and they, at the beginning, vi- visit Guédelon, where they vi- they sort of look over all the stone crafting techniques that are being used to build that castle. And of course, it's not a cathedral, so they're not really doing that same exact kind of gothic style of construction. But again, many of the same carving stones and uh, trying to fit, fit them with mortar. There's a lot of similarities going on there. Well, this is I just pulled up the website. This is really interesting, just in glancing at a few quick pictures, mm. fitting in to our conversation earlier of like did it did things in the past used to look a lot cleaner and they've just gotten dirtier over time this the, the soot conversation mm-hmm. but we're used to the soot and used to be cleaner this castle looks pretty dirty not like soot dirty but like yeah. not 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 clean like it, it it has like maybe it's partially just the color tones that i picked a, a lot yeah. of browns and yellows but it feels old and dirty despite being built in the past 20 years now i don't know maybe they chose things that were deliberately make it feel old too i'm not i'm not sure maybe or maybe or maybe just 21st century people are a lot more dirty than you know 12th century people you're saying i'm dirtier than 12th century european peasants than 12th century zach than 12th century zach Mm -hmm. that's a good question you're quite old was i cleaner or dirtier in the 12th century No, I don't remember. Are we talking about the the combination of preservation of mass and energy that you were back then? The collection of atoms that you are today? You could interpret it that way. 
I was thinking it from the perspective of if Zach had led a parallel life and had been born in 1163. That wouldn't be parallel. Well, well, okay. Or, oh, I was taking it from the, you know, the real perspective that I'm a Highlander. Mm. The real perspective. The real perspective, yes. Mm? I hear they made one good movie and then a bunch of bad ones. Well, that's all fan fiction based off of the the real Highlanders that exist out there who are immortal and chop each other's heads off. Oh, okay. <laughs> like Zach. Like Zach. So I, I did want to mention, as far as acoustical stuff goes, Gothic cathedrals like Notre Dame and many others are an example to me of an acoustical experience when you visit them that is really difficult to appreciate until you've been there for real. I There is a past podcast that I used to listen to all the time until it sort of abruptly ended. And there was one conversation that I always wanted to partake in where one of the hosts mentioned that they absolutely think live music is a complete waste of time. Why would you ever go to a live concert? Because you can listen to music just as good with any kind of recorded sounds on your audio player today uh, with terrific speakers. And I sort of thought about that and I was like, I'm not so sure that's true. Yes, you have very good speaker technology to this day. And uh, the, you know, if you record at a very high bit rate, you know, you can get some really good sounds. But there are just certain acoustical experiences, in my opinion, that especially like a cathedral are really hard to replicate unless you've really seen the thing for real. And I'm curious if you guys have had similar experiences, not necessarily at a cathedral, but in certain locations that, you know, you know, are like you you could never capture what this feels like. Um, I think that feels like is the, the right approach to the conversation, because uh, we should immediately recognize that if you go to a concert in which electrically enhanced equipment is being used you are listening to the live music from speakers. Mm. That's a good point. <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah, that's, that's very true. <laughs> so you go to a live concert and you are listening to the music from speakers. Yes, that music you can hear from speakers and acoustically it is the same. But the feeling, I think, is the point that is the point of contention that makes the most sense your reaction to their statement and what they were saying and to say it a different way how do you replicate the feeling of live music mm -hmm. yeah from your living room and you can have live music in your living room and it can come from speakers much in the same way that like you go to a concert hall and they have speakers there but there there's something different about having a person there performing the music versus um, not having a person there, even if the audio is coming from the same source. I'm not sure it's anything to do with the sound itself, which I recognize is more where you're looking at us to go, like to really talk about the sound. But I think it is the, the, the people that are there, like Zach saying, or the physical uh, experience, the musician being in front of you. If it's, a, if we're talking about a concert, the crowd around you being quote unquote, trapped in the environment where like this is all that you're supposed to be focusing on for the length of a concert or whatever all of that greatly 
changes the sensation than listening to the exact same thing in your room, uh, in your living room, in your basement or whatever. Um, even if, even if your speakers were utterly perfect and got it exactly the same, it would not be the same because you were missing all those external factors, which are maybe not equal, but a significant portion of the experience. Yes. I'd like to to basically repeat what you were saying, but in a way that that makes a little bit more sense to me that even if you had the speakers reproduce the sound exactly the same, that your other senses... Hmm contribute to the experience as well yeah and so having the visuals of having other people there having like the touch sensation having the smell sensation like having temperature sensation having like seismic sensation of like the the other the other influences in in the environment a uh, live music experience if you just look at it from the narrow band of what sound waves are hitting your eardrums you are completely misunderstanding live music experience yeah well and and i'll go even a step further where i'll say that yes many of these examples of concerts that are the kind of concerts most people at least uh in america seem to attend big speakers big open spaces for you know live music but of course you can have an entirely acoustical auditorium without speakers at all uh you know and especially for a concert orchestra or a concert band you don't necessarily you know have to restrict ourselves to you know you know electric guitars here you know there are many acoustical experiences that are done entirely authentically with the instruments only yeah but our our point like your your point it goes even beyond our point which is our point was like even if even if, even if you got the acoustics exactly the same, the experience would be different. And your point is, well, there are other experiences in which the acoustics would not be exactly the same. And I'm like, yeah, of course. <laughs> right. I just, I just want to point out variation. But to, to, to focus on, but to bring out what you're talking about, orchestra and such the the example that comes to me in, in my own uh, life regarding this and why i just i can't agree with the the statement that you um read i don't know why you're hiding the, the the podcast is hello internet it's very was very famous for a while we can fight other podcasts we're big enough bring it on hello internet yeah yeah you're you're you're, you're a dead podcast we're a live podcast <laughs> yeah 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 I, i'm i'm just I'm, I just miss hello, internet. And, yes, I know uh, you do. Mm -hmm. uh, anyways. Um, I want to the, fight them. Zach wants to fight them. <laughs> the experience that... Come uh, on, our podcast. Don't be cowards. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Everyone's, I'm calling you out right here. Hello, take, internet people. Everyone take a deep breath. Everything's fine. <laughs> I'm just trying to do like cross-promotional stuff where we get guests on our podcast. You know, it's probably <laughs> fair to say, though, that there is a perspective that if hello, internet hadn't ever gone off the air... I might not have actually made this podcast, Cathedral Talks. Very true. Because I was sort of thinking, oh, I miss Hello Internet so much. I, I miss listening to just random dudes talking about random stuff. And then I was like, I'm a random dude. I can talk about random stuff. So here we are. And here we are. <laughs> you know how most people listen to, if they listen to podcasts, they listen to quite a few. Tom does not. For years, I, Tom listened to one podcast. I've expanded You're my better horizons. better now. 
for years, it was just that one on repeat over <laughs> and over again. Yeah, yeah, well. Anyways, the experience that came to mind for me is my favorite work of music of all time is Gustav Mahler's Second Symphony, the final movement, the fifth movement. Utterly bombastic, overwhelmingly powerful music. I first discovered it when, t- uh, when taking a romantic, classical romantic music course in high school and listened to a recording of it, um, found the quote, quote, definitive recording, the best recording. Um, I, think it, I think it's Leonard Bernstein, if I remember correctly. Uh, that like people say like this is the one that you want that you should listen to you should buy it. and like okay great and so that's the only version I'd ever heard for many years and like I, I loved it I listened to it multiple times over and over um, finally maybe seven years after having known that very intimately I own the score I know that work very well uh, there came an opportunity that it was going to be performed at the Kennedy Center and I bought tickets immediately. Um, and and to your point on like best acoustics, I asked someone who knew the space very well, where should I sit? Where will it sound best in this in this audience hall, in this concert hall? <laughs> oh yeah. I'm not the only one that gets obsessive, folks. And so my wife and I went and oh my goodness, it was a com- overwhelming emotional experience um, to hear that live in person. I had goose that 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 movement is uh, i want to say 20 minutes long something like that um i had goosebumps and chills pretty constantly for 20 minutes straight because of being fully present there with the the full orchestra you get to watch it you get to feel it in your bones straight in front of you um, I'd had very emotional reactions to it, just listening to it on my own before that, but nothing, nothing compared to seeing it live. Yeah. That's exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about. Have you, David, have you ever, um, heard me talk about before that particular convocation that I attended at Earlham college long ago, which was my favorite convocation ever, um, on a topic called deep listeners. I don't think so. My favorite lecture that I ever listened to was from an academic researcher who I believe whose name was Judith Becker. She came to Earlham and she did this whole research presentation on how different people listen to music. Hmm. It was really interesting because I sort of had this really naive notion that, well, doesn't just everybody listen to music the same way? And you listen to music in a very specific way. Right. And I'm not, I'm not talking, when I said that in, again, this naive way, I'm not talking about like everybody likes the same kind of music sure, sure. or everybody, you know, listens to it on repeat or doesn't listen to it on repeat. I'm not talking about that. I just mean like I used to think that everybody is has moments of like being touched emotionally at different levels depending on what they're listening to. And this was clearly not the case at all. And I found this really interesting. Like this researcher did all sorts of case studies where she attached electrodes to people's bodies and she had them pick musical excerpts that they liked and listened to some of their favorite pieces and recorded data. And she also like did research and other things like sort of like what it was certain people who claimed they could trance uh, stuff that I'm not as familiar with. But, you know, a lot of neuro, neuro stuff. And the results were just, again, really interesting that 
some people she classified as deep listeners, where there were certain kinds of people that when they, in I, I, to, for lack of a better term, when they were emotionally aroused in this sort of enhanced sensory experience, mm-hmm. that they would have like neurostimulus reactions that were very like real that could be mapped out scientifically. Um, like that feeling of, you know, goosebumps, you know, is sort of the classic cliche, like, oh, I felt goosebumps over my spine or something. Sure. That to some extent, but even more, I think. Um, I feel that a lot as somebody who loves music and likes listening to music. Listening to pleasurable music is some of the most pleasurable experiences that I've ever had. Um, hi, Zach. <laughs> Listening to pleasurable music is one of the most pleasurable experiences you've yeah, ever yeah, had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me a break. Um, You're six margaritas but, deep. No, it's cumulative. Nine. <laughs> Nine. Okay. Sorry. Ugh. Um, but, Every episode, it's three more. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I always thought that, that that was a normal thing, that people can listen to these artistic expressions acoustically and really get themselves, you know, sort of emotionally in this sort of almost out-of-body experience kind of way. And again, it was clear that lots of people just sort of have very different neuro reactions to music. And it was just really astounding. Uh, she actually has a published book called Deep Listeners, which you can find on Amazon. Uh, I actually bought it recently and I've been sort of slowly perusing through it again to remind myself of this lecture because I found it astounding. If I heard that whole thesis just out in the world from someone that was not you uh, and I was to think through in my life anyone who I think would qualify under what she's probably getting at deep listener, I would immediately think you like you are the person that comes to mind for that in my experience, because I've known you for a long time that you do get really wrapped up in that sort of music and have very intense reactions, have very strong opinions. I do. And pull from a lot of different things and go to different things for different emotions. Yeah. More so than, well, more so than most people I know, uh, though uh, the other people I know who would be similar tend to do that more for like rock music or popular music, pop music. Yeah. Um, whereas you are very orchestral based predominantly, not exclusively, but predominantly. Yeah, I am. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that resonated with you in particular. Well, and again, the point I'm, tr- I'm, I'm trying to say is my expectation was never that, oh, only people who listen to like orchestral music and yeah, stuff yeah, would yeah. have that reaction. Yeah. But my, expe- my, my expectation had been whatever your choice of medium was, whatever your choice of music was, that you would have a reaction to the stimulus pleasure i guess goosebumps up and down the spine kind of feel uh to whatever they choose to listen to and again according to this research the answer was lots of people never react that way even when you tell them to you know play your favorite song and listen to your favorite song and i I guess i i want to be careful when i use the word pleasure i'm not saying that people are more or less happy but again according to this research it sounded as if People enter different states of, her word was trancing, uh, that people sort of get into a different sort of mode depending on really just how they're built. This reminds me of something that I think the story is, and this is more than a decade ago, you talked to mom, I think, Mm. and asked the question, 
wait, are you telling me that not everyone goes through life with music running through their head constantly? Yeah. Um, and I remember that was a clarifying moment for our family to realize that that was what was happening in your head. Cause it's certainly not true for me. Mm. Um, I do not go like right now. There's no music going on through my head. Not baby shark. Uh, well, now, okay. Now it is. <laughs> You're welcome. But yeah, that's not something I go through life. And when we realized that that was more or less your experience that did, um, yeah. change things. I don't know. That may be unrelated to the deep listening thing but i'm guessing they're probably correlated yeah i mean it all goes hand in hand and i i think i would even revise my own answer i remember that conversation a long time ago i would probably say that now i would estimate that i probably have music going through my head about 85 to 90 percent of the time but there are probably certain periods honestly right now just talking to you guys sure i think there was a moment there where i didn't have music going through my head oh but just a moment like other portions of this are there yeah yeah like once it's not true for me at all once you had like classical music i was thinking about what, what was the one piece that i was thinking of i was thinking of schubert's unfinished symphony number eight. Oh, that's a good one yeah which is the same music in uh, minority report <laughs> that they use when they are trying to hunt down the people who are about to commit crimes a, a side question that is go- related to what you sort of asked about you know do you always have music going through your head what is it that gets me to switch music in my head that's always the really interesting question because my brain will just not let go of a piece of music for days sometimes. Sometimes I will have just a piece of music in my head playing over and over and over and over again. And I'll even make some efforts. I'll be like, I am getting kind of tired of this. And I mean, I love listening to things on repeat. Like it's my jam. That's how I operate. And it doesn't bother me like it would bother bother most people. But even I get sick, you know, after, okay, I've had three days of Baby Shark. Let's listen to something else, please. Mm. And I could try to get myself to listen to something else. And sometimes it works, but sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes my brain says, nope, you're going to keep listening to Baby Shark for another day. I mean, I think everyone's experienced earworm. Yeah, certainly. I've had Mr. Blue Sky by the Electric Light Orchestra stuck in my head for like the past week. And I mean, I've been pissed that like in my head, it's the Beatles, not Electric Light Orchestra. Earworms are certainly a common thing. I get the sense that Tom's is an extent even beyond the average earworm, which is like, you start thinking about it like, oh yeah, okay, I, I hear that again. I can't get it out of my head or something. Mm. But usually like I, in my experience, that lasts for like as long as you're paying attention to it and then eventually it falls away. Yeah. 10, 20 minutes, maybe. Not always, but frequently. Mm. I get the sense for you, Tom, it's it's like the truly every waking minute. <laughs> yeah, I have music like, going through my head all the time and I used to think that that was normal and I guess now from talking to more people and having more conversations I I guess I realized that maybe mine is to a different degree than most other people but I also wonder if that sort of goes hand in hand with how I play Minecraft too for example uh my ability to sit down and do tasks uninterrupted um without getting bored at the task I think is quite high when it comes to, for example, all that blasted terraforming I needed to do for the two-to-one Minecraft build, uh, I had to clear so much dirt and so much landscaping that took more hours than I'm willing to admit. I wonder if being at peace with listening to music on repeat and also being willing to do what to many would be a monotonous task kind of goes hand in hand. I'm just sort of theorizing. From what I've listened to on other YouTubers who are Minecrafters, they also have other things going on in the background. Audible is a common sponsor for those Minecrafters. 
and they'll listen to audiobooks while they do their builds. There is some difference between having something playing in the background versus uh, just having something in your head on repeat. And it isn't entirely clear to me which of the two you were talking about. Um, I imagine it's some mixture of both. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I I feel like having something to listen to while you do some repetitive task is not as uncommon as you might otherwise have been led to believe from other people's experience. Like people will knit to something in the background all the time. I know my wife will sew, which is a combination of a repetitive task and also novel tasks with audio in the background uh, pretty constantly. I think the di- the difference is it's not that he has he's listening to something. It's that it's happening internally in his head. That's what I was saying. I don't know how much Tom was making a distinction between things actually playing on speakers in the background between and things that you're just thinking of. I don't tend to listen to songs on repeat as much as I used to. Um, I used to do that quite a bit, and now it tends to more just happen in my head automatically. But when it comes to like a new piece of music that I really like that maybe I've heard for the first time, which is a you know a surprisingly rare experience actually when I like I hear something that I really like, I usually will eat it alive and listen to it on repeat for a few hours until my brain thoroughly assimilates it. And then at that point, it's like my brain's good to go and I can just hear it in my head basically as well as um, actually listening to it. Yeah, but that sort of reinforces my point that other people listen to stuff on repeat a lot. Sure. Um, you you were never claiming to be unique, so I'm not trying to yeah, yeah. contradict no, yeah. you in any manner. But it's just I'm like, more I'm more interested in finding other people that are like me. It's like I, yeah, I yeah, like yeah. to hear about other people who sort of think the way I do and listen to music the way I do because most often finding the right combination of brain processes music this way and taste in music being the same is quite a hard combination to find, I find, for a lot of times. Yeah, I think the taste music thing is probably going to be the most difficult thing for you to identify with when other people, because I know when we lived together, you would play a lot of the pieces meant for being played on bells a lot. Mm. And I don't think I'm getting into dangerous territory when I say that it, that is not the most popular style of music. <laughs> no, no, it's not. Um, and it shouldn't come as a surprise to listeners of the podcast that you're still interested in that music, considering we devoted an episode to the that bell music. Oh, very, very true. Yeah. But <laughs> uh, like classical music in general, I don't know. I've list. I have plays of music that are well into the several hundreds of pieces of classical music so i i too listen to various pieces on repeat uh, and i can conjure in my head various movements of music uh, and i can sit and i can experience them and i can derive joy from them uh, similar to what you were talking about maybe not with the same level of fidelity that you were talking about well, actually, maybe one of you knows, you know, that common um, term that gets used a lot in Hollywood in particular, you know, that I, I think it's, is it aedic memory or edic memory? How do you pronounce it? Aedic memory? Eidetic. I, eidetic memory. There we go. 
uh, often referred to as photo memory or photographic memory, Mm -hmm. the ability to recall an image from memory with high precision for a brief period of time after only seeing it once. I can't help but wonder, is there an equivalent auditorially? Is there sort of an auditorial aidic memory? Aidetic. I can't do this. <laughs> Just say photographic. Is there is there an equivalent auditorial sort of photographic memory uh, term that is also used? Because I definitely don't have eidetic memory for like imagery, but I almost think I might for sound. But to your own admission, right? You were playing these pieces on repeat for like four hours. Yeah. The definition that you were using for photographic memory was exposed to it once and that you're able to recall it. That's true. So by that description, you don't have this for sound either. Well, this is fascinating. This idea is fascinating. I hadn't really put two and two together either, though, because I can also recall maybe not an entire piece of of music as easily as, 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 as Tom and maybe even Zach, based on how you're describing. But you know, I can certainly do chunks pretty clearly. Um, and even sometimes something that is um, singable that I can I can do in my head. If I then try to do it out loud, I can't. But it, it sounds perfectly correct in my head. Uh, and, mm. and like, I know that it's right there, but I, I can't reproduce it, even though I'm a, I'm a decent baby singer. Shark, do, 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 uh-huh. Baby shark. No, I just can't pre- reproduce it. It's just not possible. <laughs> um, also, we're going to get demonetized, Zach. Come on. But I have absolutely... At the I have the opposite of photographic memory. I can barely see something in my head at all. I have almost no mental visualization. I've been married to my wife for five years. I can barely picture her face when she's not right in front of me. Mom and dad are like, and maybe you, but frankly, not even you that much. I like are I can <laughs> sort of picture in my head pretty clearly, huh. but beyond that, I pretty much can't. Um, but music. No issue. So it's clearly a different, yeah. a different section of the brain or whatever. Yeah. I would like to bring this back to sort of my original question, though, about experiences in spaces that cannot be duplicated. And I remember one of my most vivid memories was the first time I went to St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And I had never heard before a legit full-blown cathedral organ. I had certainly heard organs before at, you know, local Protestant churches at the various places that I used to go in the Midwest and eventually in upstate New York when my family moved up there. But we're talking about, you know, a real full-blown gaskets blazing organ in a gigantic cavernous space like St. Paul's Cathedral with its massive dome that you can sit right under and have the sound just reverberate throughout the great hemisphere. And it's just, it was such an awesome feeling to experience for the first time. I literally just stood out of my seat just to listen. Fortunately, um, it wasn't during like a service, so I didn't like get yelled at. But (laughs) um, it it was just this moment of wonderful sensory stimuli that there's just, there's something that you had to be there to experience, I guess. And I think that this is something that's lost on a lot of people. When it comes to music, I think that people would enjoy music more of other genres that they're not used to if they would listen to it live in person. Because I think like Zach was sort of alluding to the experience that you're there is something that there's all there's always something intrinsic that can't be duplicated. That's not 
exactly what I was articulating. I think what I was trying to articulate, maybe, and I failed to do so, is not that the experience itself can't be duplicated, but assuming that the experience is only the auditory experience is the wrong way of looking at it. Yes, yes. And that, that's what I'm trying to get at, too, when I was experiencing that organ at St. Paul's. You know, it's not just the acoustical, what I hear in my ears. Like, you're literally feeling it in your chest, right? Your your whole body is resonating. Right. So if you, like, it, it's hard to make this point when the technology is in advance to make it. But, like, there there is the present in which we have VR goggles and you can see in the space, there is the present in which you can have body rocking speakers. There is the present in which you can emit aroma into the air. And there is the science fiction of something like the matrix, which you can jack into your brain and you can, you can relay all those sensory experiences directly into the brain. Mm. But there is a future prior to something like the matrix where you can reproduce experiences with a higher fidelity than we can now. And I don't want my argument to rest on current technology's inability to replicate experiences and pin the experience on some indelible liveness in being there in the present, some like spiritual, non-physical thing that you just had to be there. That's not on what my argument rests on. My argument rests on it, it's it's a whole suite of sensory experiences. I got a little lost in what you're saying. Are you saying that uh, you think that technology could progress to the point where it encompasses the live elements that are beyond the auditory? Um, yeah. Okay. So. Yep. Okay. Maybe we're not there yet right now, but I don't want to take that out of the, the realm of future possibility. But I, I, I want to make a distinction. Tom was making some mm-hmm. quasi-spiritual argument for being there. And that you can't, it, it is not only impossible now, it is fundamentally impossible to recreate the live music experience uh, with it not being live music. And I don't, I'm not going to go that far. I'm going to say it is possible to recreate the live music experience theoretically as long as you don't pretend that it's just the sounds that make up a live music experience. Well, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole now, but maybe I'll just throw it out as a question for people to ponder for a future episode. But, you know, there's a common assumption, I think, in our 21st century civilization that Technology will get better forever exponentially is usually the general trope, you know, that computer chips and, you know, our ability to simulate things will just continue to grow radically more impressive over time. And I mean, maybe that's true. And you know, that's a pretty cool future if that's true in a lot of ways. But I also find it really interesting if it's actually true that maybe technology caps like like Star Wars, for example, right? You know how you have like a, a, a universe where, you know, society kind of hits a point where technology just really can't go much farther and then things really stagnate. And I could foresee that being a possibility. And maybe for that reason, really, it is impossible to simulate some things with complete fidelity. But the, the reality 
of technology being able to reproduce uh, the live music experience is not important to my argument because it doesn't currently exist, right? It's whether or not there is something indelible about the live music experience. And I don't think there is. Um, I think currently I would highly, highly, highly recommend the live music experience because it has all of those other sensations that we don't reproduce. It feels theoretically possible to you. It feels theoretically possible to me, but sort of tangent to my core point, which is it's the the reproducibility of it doesn't hinge on the reproducibility of the audio alone. Right, 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 right. right, right. Far more than just the sound waves being exactly the same. Exactly, yeah. Of course, you want to make sure that any scenario that you replicate with your impressive technology in some future doesn't have any nesting to it for very much the same reason that you wouldn't ever want to build a model train layout in of your like local village with your own house with your own model train layout in it on the inside oh okay now i understand and then having it continue to just layer down until you get down to the subatomic level uh, I can see similar issues arising <laughs> with auditory. I, I love weird movies, and um, <laughs> there's there's something uh, Synecdoche, New York, mm. by Charlie Kaufman mm. has this this issue where he's trying to make a slice of life play about a playwright who writes a slice of life play about a playwright who <laughs> writes, a, and, and it's got that infinite nesting in it, right. and it's a movie. Uh, and it gets really weird really fast. <laughs> and uh, Charlie Kaufman is an amazing writer. Uh, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is an amazing actor. Mm. And so I highly recommend it if you're into really weird movies. <laughs> Someone literally texted me tonight. My phone is on TV. And it's a picture of them sitting on the couch with their phone taking a picture of the TV. And then if you zoom in, you see that the TV is the phone taking a picture of the room and so presumably this goes on infinitely or at least up until the pixels die out Mm. but uh yeah there's there's a really interesting idea of self-similarity which is well defined in mathematics that maybe if you're one of tom's students you can ask him about self-similarity. Well, every, every, all of our listeners are Tom students, right? That's their collective name, Tom students. Oh, oh, right. That's right. We, we name. So all of you listeners, you should, no matter where you are on this beautiful earth, uh, walk up to Tom and ask him specifically about self-similarity. I hope you have a lesson plan for them. Great. <laughs> That's it for now. Check out our podcast website at cathedraltalk.fm. There you will find many architectural visuals and Minecraft goodies. If you would like to support our efforts here at Cathedral Talk to aid in the restoration of Notre Dame, please use the direct link on our website to donate to friendsofnotredamedeparis.org. Friends of Notre Dame is a nonprofit organization that is leading the international fundraising efforts to rebuild and restore Notre Dame Cathedral. By donating to them through the link at cathedraltalk.fm, we'll know that our podcast is reaching new patrons. As our own Minecraft project progresses, we'll be sure to share plans, screenshots, and videos for your own visual palette. Good day and happy building. Thank you.